Hope you're hungry. The table is set. Join us for another cosmic feast. All right, welcome back. Ready for episode two, David? Season two, episode two. I am so ready. Today we have an interesting book that I have been yes. really excited to hear about. It's like less like theoretical, I think, in the stars and more of like a story, a man's story, right? Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a good way to put it. It was it was. Equally exciting reading it as you are excited to hear about it. So, oh, good. <laughs> so, overall, we're going to talk about the man who wrote it, Marion Rudnick. Um, he's the author of this book called Intersect A Former NASA Astronomer Breaks His Silence About UFOs. <laughs> so, that's Beautiful. the full title. Um, we're gonna we're gonna learn who he was, what he did, what he's still doing, and why the book, this book, Intersect, was a, a huge breakthrough for the UFO community as well as the rest of the world. All right, headlines for today: We have the man of a million faces, a surge of crazies at the propulsion lab. Who says you have to be right-brained or left-brained? The main event and the beginning of the end. Um, so real quick, before we get into that first headline, um, why Intersect? This was, this, I, I felt like this was an interesting title to begin with. And um, the very first three paragraphs of the book are like, they, they ask the same question, Intersect, why Intersect? So I'm just going to read the little excerpt right at the beginning um, to get us started. So what is an intersect? In math, specifically geometry, it's when two lines cross. Colloquially, it is when one path or thing crosses another, right? Life is full of intersects. When choosing between life paths, we face crossroads. But crossroads are not intersects. When an intersect happens, we are confronted with something that is totally unexpected. It is an event that is so profound, so life-changing, that unlike a crossroad, it provides no choice. It offers no quarter. Whether you accept it or not, it sets you on a new path. Hmm. The only choice you can make is how you deal with it. Interesting. Yeah. That's, okay. Yeah, That's an right? interesting <laughs> distinction. Yeah, because okay, the title's called Intersect. It's a it's a good title because it's kind of I've never heard any other book called that, you know, or song yeah. or anything called that, you know. But it's an interesting right. it's an interesting idea. An astronomer would choose like a very distinct <laughs> sort of geometric mathematical term. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Um, all right, so here we go. Marion Rudnick, who was he? The man of a million faces. Was? That he's was, dead? That's my coin term. Who was he? <laughs> no, he's not dead. Marion's doing great. He's doing a lot of things. This book actually just came out in the summer of 2017, so it's a pretty recent book. But in his past, Marion worked for NASA. He was an astronomer, an imaging specialist, and a planetary geologist, okay? So he studied asteroids that came into orbit of different planets like Jupiter and Saturn. Um, he was on several missions where, like, you know, he, he would stay on Earth and do all the digital uh, recording of, like, the, the ships that they sent out to other planets. Um, he, he named a ton of asteroids, so, like, he is very well known in the, in the NASA community, right? But he was not just 
a scientist. He also became an animator later in his life. He worked for Disney. He worked on movies like Titanic as a special effects animator. Isn't that isn't that just crazy? Like <laughs> That's so cool. I mean, yeah, right? what a cool career. So he was an astronomer for NASA and then he became an animator or vice versa? Yep. We're going to get into it, but yes, the, the way you said it the first time is correct. And then and now he is a full-time author. So, you know, just he's lived so many lives. Did you ever so take many... astronomy growing up? No, I think like my freshman year of high school was like a Stars and Galaxies class. Or sorry, <laughs> freshman year of college, I took a, a Stars and Galaxies class. That sounds adorable. Stars and Galaxies. That's So, carrying on with Marion, um in his field, he was known for challenging the unknown, okay? So he was the kind of man who was always, I, I don't like to use the word debunking, but he was the one who, who was taking information that he had witnessed and deciding what it was and, and like defining it and creating a reason for why it existed and why it was there, you know? So he, he was kind of the opposite of on the side of the UFO community who were looking for things on purpose that were, are not like of our worldly origin, you know? He was known for challenging the unknown in that sense. Um, he also, while during his time at NASA, worked with Russian counterparts. He was fluent in Ukrainian, that's where his family came from, and he knew enough, like, Russian and Spanish to get get through with uh, communicating with the Russia's version of NASA. So he worked at the P Palomar Observatory in San Diego, and he worked, like, at the telescope, like, outside in the cold, blustery, t you know, times when it was, you know, you weren't, like, inside looking at a computer screen back when he was working at NASA. So <laughs> it wasn't virtual like they do it nowadays. His little and, chair uh, was, like, at the seat <laughs> of the telescope outside. Exactly. To climb yeah, down the yeah. ladder. Um, so yeah, he never associated with ufology, as we call it. But surprisingly, his brother, who was a philosopher, did. Um, so wow. he, he was very aware of it. And it was always like following him in his life, even though he was not a contributor or like, you know, he didn't care about anything that was happening there. Marion, at the very beginning of this book, he like prefaces that this book could risk his reputation, his livelihood, like he has fellow scientists who will privately support him for, for, you know, talking about this very faux pas thing, you know, in the scientist world, but they would yeah. still publicly condemn him for publishing this. So like those same people, you know, have to live both lives as well and protect their own reputations, even though they might be in support of him and what he's doing. And all of you out there might be going, what are you talking about? What did he, what did, was this book about? What did he write it about? What, what's the big deal? So this man witnessed a UFO encounter and he's witnessed many more idea that once you see them, they follow you, right? <laughs> but it changed his perspective for life, uh, causing yeah. what we are calling an intersect. Exactly. You're on their radar. Yeah. They, they, they're aware of you. I mean, you're not just like a tiny speck they're not aware of. They, they're aware of your identity, your consciousness, your location. Yeah. We're talking about kind of like fate in a way for yeah. somebody who... <laughs> Like like you're saying, astronomers are the last people mm -hmm. that will sit down and have a conversation with you in the open or in articles or anything about aliens. Ironically, right? The people looking up at the sky completely ignore every aspect of the UFO phenomenon, all the reports, yeah. all the research. 
But I've heard that behind closed doors, they do talk about this stuff. Some of them, you know, I, I don't know how true that is, but we talked about that with Jacques Vallée, right? Like there was a, there were several people in his community that like changed their names when they would publish stuff in the UFO community that were scientists, like so that they could protect their identity. It's probably your dream as someone who looks to the stars to come into contact with that phenomenon, to discover an alien. Yeah. Imagine the first astronomer yeah. to just flat out discover an alien spaceship or or, or a planet where there's activity going on or a radio signal, just a signal. It doesn't even have to prove that aliens are anywhere near us. It goes yeah. to show you how the cover-up, the insane cover-up of this stuff has sort of, you know, created a veil on any sort of discovery where even if you did report on it, you would be ridiculed. You know, the scientist that said that spatial asteroid, they, he named it Anamuna, or I forget how to pronounce that, but he Anamuna. was ridiculed for, for claiming that this might not be an asteroid, that it might be a ship mm -hmm. or a vessel of some kind. And still to this day, even though it does seem to be getting easier with the with the announcement of ATIP and, and the release of those videos a couple years ago, th things are changing, but it's still, still a tricky process. Yeah, there's just a, like we've talked about in the first season, this incredible taboo that surrounds it, where where it's just this it's this rejection of the scariest thing you could imagine. It's this rejection of the unknown, that just runs deep in the blood and amongst a lot of that community. And you would, I, I hope that with the government revealing that not only are they studying these things, but they've discovered these things and that there is this aspect, you know, that was completely blown over last year. <laughs> like last year, yeah. so many crazy things happened, the pandemic and everything. It's just like, we completely missed the fact that the U S government has begun to acknowledge that this is a real phenomenon. You know, I wonder how much that's affected astronomers' ability to talk about this or, or scientists' ability to study it. And a little before all of all of those uh, release from the Pentagon videos came out. So this was this was very scary time for him to to come out and just be outright with this. Risking. Um, and explain what happened. So we, we right. have to go back a little bit and talk about, you know, his background and some interactions that he had with uh, UFO level encounters so this is some nasa encounters for four important ones that uh marion had that involved ufo related incidents while he was working there yes so this um this is what surge of the crazies at the propulsion lab is about he worked at the jet propulsion lab as we as we talked about and the, these are all what marion referred to as small intersects that led up to this biggest one that we're going to talk about. I thought they were pretty entertaining. The first one, he was like, Bigfoot and NASA. And um, he's referring to a man named John Eric Beckyard, who was this big, intimidating, scruffy Norwegian man. Uh, he kind of looked like Bigfoot himself, but he was a Bigfoot hunter. That was like his whole sh shebang. Um, he ran the Cryptozoological Museum of Malibu, <laughs> what they call the Sea Mom, if you want to look it up. And he... He says the uh, the reason that we rarely see Bigfoot is because they are trans-dimensional beings. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes total sense. No, so so he just he described this man as kind of looking like Bigfoot himself with how big and scruffy he was. So Beckard was granted access to visit Rudnick at his facility in NASA in 1990. It is a facility that 
that's open to the public, but he got access for like two straight weeks to come in and like just went through tons of information that Rudnick's facility had been storing. And he freaked out about this one image one day and like told everyone in the area, like kind of freaking them out, that NASA was hiding the fact that Mars had these craters that represented Snow White and the Seven Dwarves on them. Okay, so <laughs> so there's not much to go into detail about that, but Marion had to like basically, he had to like calm everyone down and, and be like, you know, like he, this, this guy was creating a big hype in the facility and, and he had to kind of bring everyone to a level. And then coincidentally, it, the facility was shutting down for the day. So he kind of used that as his excuse to kick Beckyard out. Um, and he was saying like, it's past hours. You're fine. You can come back tomorrow and do more research. And the guy freaked out. He was like, you're going to delete all the information. Uh, you know, you're NASA's just covering up everything. I found it. I found it. And you're going to hide it and blah, blah, blah. So he, he went crazy. <laughs> Um, but Marion held, you know, handled him very calmly and got him out of the facility. And, um, a couple weeks later, the guy never came back, but a couple weeks later, uh, it turned out. I'm so surprised he never came back. He wasn't invited (laughs) back. He wasn't invited back. Um, but it turned out a couple weeks later, Beckyard had gone to his senator at DC and like put through a whole crazy documents and whatever, just saying that Marion needed to be fired um, for kicking him out of the public facility. And Marion like received this information and basically had a fight for his job. Like this was basically the beginning of his resentment toward what he defined as UFO nuts, right? So you you can see why he's a little skeptical and and a little annoyed. Yeah, by I mean, a, a crazy person. <laughs> this is like before the internet was kicking, right? Like a crazy person, <laughs> yeah. a crazy person just doing it the old-fashioned way, writing to their yeah. senator and trying to get your job, <laughs> even though they they wanted to talk about Snow White and the Seven Dwarf conspiracies on the moon, you know. <laughs> These are the On people. Mars, yes. These are the people that make the more serious conspiracy theorists, if that's if that can be a thing. Like they yeah. they make them look bad. Oh, and there was another story uh, that he called the Gemini. It was from the Gemini missions um, that had happened back in the seventies, and they were these films, like big, you know, the big circular discs, the way film used to be made in the old days, where it was like burned onto little squares. Marion discovers these films in a very unlikely place. He's rewiring his facility because he recently got relocated to like this old computer room. So it was like this freezing room. And so he was trying to like rewire things to get the more heat like in through the vents and stuff. So he was pulling up tiles of the floor and like going down underneath where all the wiring was. And he discovered reels of footage hidden under the floors of his facility in a box. Hidden under the floors. Hidden under the floors. Wow. Like, never to be seen again. At least that's what someone who hid them there had hoped. So he reported it, like, on their NASA, you know, whatever, jet propulsion database. And he, um, all of his coworkers started coming in, and they were like, what is this? You found this film under your floors? What? And so, like, everyone wants to see it, and they're pulling up the little the burned squares and uh they're they're looking at the composites and they're trying to decide what this was and uh he actually talked to a coworker who was like oh yeah wasn't there a ufo encounter that happened with the gemini missions and he he had no previous knowledge about this but he kind of started looking through them and he noticed that there were certain squares where the film had been eradicated they were missing and he was like wow i I have no idea. And 
again, you know, he he's pretty cynical about the whole UFO conundrum anyway. So he just kind of fluffed it off, didn't think anything of it. And the next thing he knew, this like mystery man from NASA like came in and was like, you have to com- comply, hand over everything by tomorrow morning. Yeah, don't take any records of anything, you know, like pretty big threats, but it was like a very high up. So he was just like, whatever. But he and his coworker ended up staying late that night to see why they would have found footage underneath their floors. And um, yeah, they, they discovered all these little squares were missing out, out of the, the frames of the film. Um, so he, he just kind of asked the question, if they have nothing to hide, why were the films literally hidden under the floors? <laughs> What is the reason in here? So, so the film they the film he discovered it had it had film missing, but he didn't see evidence of UFOs. Like he didn't see discs Correct. or anything. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yep. It was as if everything had been cut out. But it's like, but if you cut everything out, why are you hiding the films to begin with, right? Why are you? Yeah, why are you tossing that stuff under floorboards? Yeah, it's weird. yeah. Because for the for the most part, it would have just been they would have just gotten rid of the film. They would have thrown it away, or you know somehow gotten rid of it and it wouldn't be hidden under the floors of the NASA propulsion lab. <laughs> so another encounter that he had was with Stanton Friedman, a nuclear physicist and a professional ufologist. So he's very high up in the UFO community and he's known as a professional in both the science world as well as, um, you know, the UFO community. So he, he was actually one of the original civilian investigators of the Roswell incident. I learned that. I was, I was looking him up um, yeah. later, and I, I think that's kind of funny because, you know, we were talking about Roswell last, uh, last episode. Um, so Marion didn't know who this guy was when he came in. He had no idea. He'd, um, but the only thing he did know was that this man was super rude to him and, like, treated him like he was stupid the whole time he was there. He was like, oh, well, how do you explain this? And Marion, you know, I mean, he... He was a very smart, intelligent guy and just kind of explained everything that the guy was throwing at him. And he, uh, Stanton just like had this very stuck up attitude toward him and just, mm. yeah, didn't treat him well. And and so um, like on his lunch break, Marion was talking to some of his coworkers about it. And he was like, yeah, this man came and he was like such a jerk to me. And they're like, oh, who was it? And he looked on his log and he was like, uh, Stanton Friedman. And they were like, oh, my God, he came in and. You, you had no idea who he was. Like, he's super highly respected by scientists and UFOlogists alike. So um, that was another funny uh, interaction, intersect, baby intersect, as uh, Marion considered it. So he met someone who had a lot of tough questions for him. He deflected it all. I mean, each one probably sees the other as, like, unknowledgeable, right? Like Exactly. Friedman sees or him like as a scam who, artist who just doesn't know and is going to deflect everything and... Yeah, I wonder why I wonder why Friedman um, bothered to come by. Right. You know. Well, he was looking for something. There was it, it's yeah. a, it's like a research lab, so they they can like it's kind of like okay. a library. You know, you can go and like, yeah, you know that this, again. This is pre pre internet days, so this is yeah. where you had to go and get the hard cold research in your hands. Or even early um, internet days, right? Stuff mm-hmm, is not mm-hmm. the way it is now as far as archives and information right. and everything. Exactly, exactly. There's so many times in the book uh, where Marion refers to like preserving information that like NASA just is like, oh, we don't need that anymore. That's from from the 50s and he's like but this is how we learn we learn from our past experiences and our past information to like you know 
what what has changed what has grown like what else do we know you know so he talks about that all the time uh the last baby intersect that happened while during his time at nasa was these uh lunar protesters that came it was a a husband and wife marion was hosting this huge like expo tour that he had planned in his facilities like he had hired all these people to like stand at different stations everyone was on walkie-talkies like ready at a moment's notice and they were they they had like i think i I can't remember what the exact number was but he said something like eight thousand people came in that day like it was a it was there were a lot of people there was a lot of hype about this new thing and this this husband and wife they they were part of the group that came in but they like broke past one of the rope stanchions and stood up on a table and they started shouting things like nasa's lying we have proof there are cities on the moon military aliens coexisting you know snow white and the seven dwarves <laughs> so uh marion's team they're all like I-, I need your help i'm down here in the south corridor of the back room you know whatever and so marion's like oh gosh here we go again so he went down there very calmly again this man just seems like he's really good at handling tough situations but he calmly yeah. talked them off the tables he brought them to a room and asked them like what are your questions like what do you what do you think we're lying about like what what do you want to know and they were showing him pictures um that were obviously edited um that had been like you know, like copied over multiple times and and things were added to the original photos. And so he um, showed them the originals of their doctored photos and how if cities were on the moon, why wouldn't we be able to see them with our advanced telescopes? Um, You know, telescopes that can see pinpoints on the moon why couldn't we see entire cities if they existed right so he kind of he talked to them down and they were very understanding and uh they kind of came to an an agreement there at the end and they were like wow (laughs) and unfortunately it caused an intersect for them because then their whole life was like wow we've been living a lie this whole time (laughs) and uh they 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 had to go home and kind of rethink their lives so (laughs) the spell was broken they were Mm -hmm. like all right well i guess we just better get a normal hobby you know (laughs) i guess i should go back to work yeah stop stop staying up till 2 a.m drinking wine and freaking (laughs) each other out over nonsense yeah it's a good it's a good question they're good questions there you know why why is it so discreet right Mm -hmm. are are the aliens they're clearly hiding you know are they inside the moon are they we we did a moon episode you know like yeah we did are they inside the moon are there structures? Are, the, are there the missing side? slides and videos of <laughs> what's really on the moon? You know, um, people want information. They, you know. Yeah, there's a weird sort of deceptiveness to the phenomenon, and and yet we're being deceived as well. So it's it's interesting. So in that situation, he calmed them down and was able to sort of explain things from a scientific perspective i mean we need we need this because anytime you're dealing with the ufo phenomenon the majority of the phenomenon is not ufos right the majority Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you need to be able to do those tests and filter out the reasonable explanations but then you also need people like marion rudnick you need scientists to be able to say okay this falls into the category of stuff that i cannot explain i cannot 100 percent explain right right so there's a humility there and a, and a transparency there that you need from scientists as well. So this couple went on to compete in dancing, <laughs> dancing for the stars. Or, yeah, or... they, yep, they became professional <laughs> cloggers and uh, moved to Ireland. 
Perfect. No. Um, no, so soon after all of this craziness was happening, um, Marion, like, had his own group of protesters that were, like, outside his facility every day, and he just felt like NASA in general wasn't wasn't the NASA that it was when he got hired there. So, um, in, in the 90s, he felt like the program was going downhill. He he decided, yeah, you know what, I, uh, I want to take an animation class just for fun, because, and, and he... He actually drew a comic for uh, the NASA's, like, I don't know if it was a weekly newspaper or something, but they had their own, like, they had their own newspaper, right, within the the Jet jet Propulsion Lab. Um, And he created a comic called Lunar Loonies that were these two little, uh, they were, like, two little aliens that lived on an asteroid that, like, traveled to planets all around the universe. And and so he already, uh, yeah, he was already kind of an artistic dude, uh, which which brings us to our next um, headline. Who says you have to be right-brained or left-brained? This this is this is a man who seems to be able to, uh, you know, attribute both sides of his brain. <laughs> so he takes this animation class and pursued his love for comics. And he was like, uh, they offered him a union job actually right away. And he was like, I'm gonna see if I can just get a job on my own first, and like we'll go from there. He immediately gets this job, um, an animator job through Acme, AM, ACME, the Acme. I think I'm saying that right. Um, and he he made a Levi's commercial, um, which went mm-hmm. on to like win some really prestigious awards. Uh, and he was like, okay, maybe this is my thing. So he drops NASA. Um, and soon after, his dad actually found in the newspaper there was an article that they were hiring uh, what they called quote unquote displaced aerospace workers. So a lot of a lot of uh, programs were getting defunded then, and a lot of NASA employees were already losing their jobs anyway. Uh, Marion had already gotten out at that point, um, but he was like, you know what? Mm, why not? I'm gonna go go for an interview. So he shows up, and the people, uh, the hiring people there, they already knew who he was. They like bring him to the side, and they're like, listen. We're so glad you're here. We want to hire you. We're only hiring like eight people. Um, you're automatically on the list, but you can't tell anyone. Like we still have to go through the the official process and stuff. And um, and so he he was hired on the spot. He went on a one month training for Hollywood and ended up booking his first job on Titanic. A week later, as a visual effects artist um he worked on several movies after that i know right just like immediately just like didn't even have to work for it just (laughs) was like i'm gonna be an animator and thus was an animator um he worked on several movies including armageddon a beautiful mind uh lord of the rings star trek 9 which excited him a lot because he's a he's a big trekkie um and then he was like i really want to work for disney and he uh found his moment by uh this movie that was coming out called a mission to mars um if if you you're aware of it uh it actually wasn't a disney movie but the company that was producing the movie ended up getting bought by disney so that was kind of his way in and he actually for that movie edited um some real footage that came from the government and he as he was like editing it and working on the the visual effects he noticed there was like an orb that kept floating through the the footage and he was like there's some kind of unidentified object in this film. Like, do you want me to cut it out? And it went up, it went up to the heads and to the producers and like, it ended up being a legit UFO. Like they could not identify what this was. And he had to literally edit it out of a movie, (laughs) which is kind of funny. It's a Brian De Palma film. I remember seeing this movie actually, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) it had Gary Sinise and Tim Robbins. It had a very bizarre ending. Yeah, that movie is a bit strange and cool. I don't really remember it that well, but they encounter alien life in that film. But that's very cool. So he worked on that film and that... Exactly, yep. And they they would consult him often on 
several bits of movies. But yeah, so all, all of these things in Marion's crazy, crazy life, we're, we're at the second half of his life now. He's now an animator and a pretty successful one at that, lead up to this event. So this is the main event. This is, this is what the whole meat of the book is about, right? And I mentioned it b- very briefly earlier, but Marion had a UFO encounter. Uh, he saw four disc-shaped craft moving in a diamond formation silently in the sky, and he witnessed that the last disc was descending. And he he mentioned there were a lot of things that weirdly aligned before this sighting, um, including calendar timing, the weather, a gift he received, and then the specific car and diner that he chose to eat at. So in terms of calendar timing, this happened on, it was New Year's Eve of, of 2016, and it was on a Saturday, and because New Year's Day was going to be on a Sunday, they decided to, like, prolong the football game and the Rose Bowl parade. And, you know, this was all happening in his small town of Monrovia, California, which which is uh, where all these big events I- occurred, right? So the, the Rose Bowl parade, um, basically the town was dead, right? So this is January 1st, 2017. It was a Sunday. The weather was very cold and rainy. It was super overcast. There wasn't much that you could see in the skies there wasn't a whole lot of visibility uh to begin with and um he had just received a gift from the night before from a friend uh that was an old digital camera that they just didn't want anymore and he thought it was kind of cool so he's like yeah i'll take it and he decides to take his mom out for lunch on january 1st since the town is so dead and he at this point in his life being successful as he is is a collector of many classic cars so he decides to take his 1967 Pontiac Catalina to fit the style and he drives it to one of the very last surviving um, McDiners so it's a McDonald's McDiner uh, that they designed to be like a cute 50s diner Uh, they don't it doesn't exist anymore actually but when when he went out to Take his mom. This is this was one of the last McDiners uh, around in the area. So he's so he's having lunch with his mom. Yeah, he decided to take his mom out for for lunch to the McDonald's diner, okay, and cool. he, so they arrive. And again, like it's cold, rainy, overcast, uh, and they start heading in. He almost forgets his digital camera, and he's like, "Oh, but I," because he really wanted to take pictures of the interior of the of the diner and like his car with the diner because it was old school looking. You know, it, he just wanted pictures of that. He likes to document everything, um, so he wanted to take pictures of the interior of the of the diner um so they they eat they chat they take pictures and and the windows in the in the diner are all like giving panoramic views of the town so it's like full windows all the way around this diner um so they're both looking outside and at 422 he noticed four objects drop out of the clouds in the southwest part of the town mom there's some sort of aircraft flying outside what they must be part of the New Year's Day celebration. I thought that wasn't happening until tomorrow. I'm, I'm going to go out and get a better view. They're probably just parade aircraft or balloons of some kind. I, I guess they could be rehearsing. I went outside of the McDiner and looked up. What I saw stopped me dead in my tracks. As I stood there, I watched not one, not two or three, but four disc-shaped craft silently move below the low cloud deck. My eyes widened with the realization that I was watching flying saucers. They were real. So Marion has no choice but to document it in classical scientist fashion, right? He trusts his eyes. I mean, he trusts his senses. (laughs) He has an encounter himself, and it's four UFOs. 
in the sky. Yep. And this man has spent how many years looking up in the sky? Like he knows uh, what an object is when he sees it for the most part. You know, he, he was naming every single type of military craft that exists. Like this man is very knowledgeable about the things that fly in the aerospace, right? He so, knows distance, length of the vehicle, probably exactly. estimating the length of the vehicle. And just if you've ever seen a UFO, I think I've had one sighting once and it just doesn't move ufos do not move like anything else that we know we don't have any drones we don't have any propulsion based objects that are capable of moving at that speed in that way yeah and i think there are pictures on his website of the mcdiner event there are yes um the entire book like has a huge appendix at the end just showing all the pictures like and pointing to everything zooming in like clearing up the image um yeah there's tons tons of evidence um so you can look at that on his website on in his book so marion's documenting what what he's seeing right so he he documents that they're moving at a slow speed um but with quick descent right they're moving perpendicular to the heavy winds with little to no effort which is almost impossible with our air craft of today they had a dark and distinct disc shape and the only sound that he could hear in probably within a mile radius was the sound of a flag chain hitting the pole nearby because there were no there weren't even other cars on the road that's how dead the town was so all he could hear was this flag chain hitting the pole and he couldn't hear the the things up in the air at all they had no wings, no engines, no rudder, no propellers. And the last disc, the disc wow. he refers to as Craft 4, was dropping quickly. So he, he deducted that these uh, craft were being flown. They weren't objects, right? They were being flown. Whether or not they were being flown remotely, who knows. But they were under right. some sort of intelligent control. He could see that the craft that was closest, there were panels underneath of it that were triangular panels and the other three craft seemed to be helping the fourth craft from dropping into the middle of town all of this happened over two minutes and it vanished before he could even go back inside and get his mom so two minutes go by he goes back inside he's like he got pictures he got video of this and his whole worldview is just spun 180 right so he's like finishing up dinner with his mom, but he can't wait to get home and look at these pictures and figure out what the hell he saw up in the sky, right? They, they end up taking a detour home. They check the city's thermometer um, and, it, and it reads 62 degrees, which he thought was important to document. Um, okay. He gets back home. He fires up his laptop, sketches what he sees. He puts in the memory card. You, you know, in the olden days when you had to like take out your memory card from your digital uh, camera, put it in the sure. SD drive, put it in the computer. Yeah. And he reveled in awe. What he discovered were four colored craft with triangular panels underneath. But the fourth craft had asymmetrical splotches on it. So he's assuming it's some kind of potential ship damage. It looked like it had maybe burn marks. Um, he couldn't tell exactly. But it, it would have explained why the craft was flying so much lower than the other ones. And um, something he discovered in the pictures that he actually didn't witness with, his, uh, with the naked eye was that there was a fifth UFO coming to the rescue for all four of them that was even bigger and further away coming at a really great speed and he caught it in the pictures and the video but he wow. couldn't couldn't see that with his own eye so that's pretty exciting so he he referred to these as these as unknown flying craft right because he knew that they weren't objects he knew that they were being flown that they were being 
intelligently controlled, as we said. So here are some facts that he that he had. He said all five of them had the same shape. They all had a triangular pattern underneath. They were different colors. Craft one and two were kind of reddish. The third one was blue. The fourth one was green. The fifth one he, didn't, again, didn't see with his naked eye, so he's not sure about that one. None of them had external flight surfaces. None of them had engines. They were all silent. They seemed to be immune to wind, weather, rain, and they had great bursts of sustained speed. They were not infallible, obviously, because one of them seemed to look damaged. He said they were machine-made. These were not natural, like, creatures, right, in the sky. They were like orbs or space jellyfish or whatever. Exactly. They didn't look like creatures. Sun dogs. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, So he did the math, and he shows his math in the book, too. But he came to the conclusion that these craft were approximately half a mile away from where he was standing. He drew a whole map and recreated the geometric measurements in order to get the size of the craft, which he decided was 18.4 feet in diameter, roughly, and 6 feet in height. They moved at an average speed of 25 miles an hour. And uh, he thinks that the coloring of the craft came from what he calls the ionization theory, that there was this gas surrounding the craft that gave a a halo-like quality to them and could have led to the coloring distinction. Um, He also noted that the crafts, sometimes when they rotated, he would see what looked like a dome on top. So when you think of like your classic flying saucer, right, they got that little dome on top. What would a dome be for? Suggests that it might have been piloted actively right not remotely that someone was inside the craft because you know what would be the point of the dome if no one was in there (laughs) so he was like i need to figure out if this is like some kind of u.s experiment of new machinery that we're not aware of or if it's foreign if it's from another country or if it's something that's otherworldly right so okay what he thought was just the beginning of this craziness. And this is this leads us to our article, The Beginning of the End. But before we get here, I wanted to stop for some synchronicities. Synchronicity. So I was watching a show... Oh, no, I was watching a movie called The Atom Project. It just came out on Netflix. Ryan Reynolds, it's like number one movie, or at least it was. Uh, It's a story about someone from the future, sort of a very small sort of contained group of characters, someone from the future that's part of a military project that his father helped pioneer that invented time travel, basically, comes back. He, He goes back in time. And he he mistakenly goes too far back in time and he meets his younger, like 10 or 12 year old self or something. So it's a interesting story about a character meeting himself. Right. Okay, And in that story, at some point, they discuss their birthday and it's my birthday. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Of course. it is. But the reason that it's a synchronicity for me is because. I had been developing a story last year about a character that meets himself. Oh my God. And has to work together with himself to hunt down like an alien menace. So, <laughs> and, and, the, and his future self is from space, like from a wow. t- from like the far future where. So it's weird because I had been obsessing over that story. And then here I am watching a movie about a character meeting themselves and like my birthday is in there. It's just super crazy. David, do you think that they might have stolen your story? Just, just asking? <laughs> no, no, not at all. But it's, 
it's just really strange. I mean, it, it just brings together this idea that synchronicities, like they're signs from the universe, but they're signs that almost seem like they were programmed into the future before you were even born kind of thing. Like there are things that are yeah. just already set up within the fabric of yeah. time and space. Like no matter what choice you make, they're going to occur around it's like, you. Yeah, you're you're at a particular moment. You see a particular advertisement. That particular advertisement is speaking to every aspect of your life or something that just happened. You're like how – like there's no – there's no way to understand this other than the fact that the entire world and its probabilities are alive in some <laughs> yeah. fashion. Wow. You know, are alive. Or that your lifetime was kind of programmed to or designed to sort of intersect. There's that word again. Yeah. With Intersect with a particular set of circumstances to give you some sort of a signal. But it was really cool. That was a really, really cool synchronicity. That is really cool. That's a good one. I, I have two, but they're they're tell me, tell very me. minimal. But um, they they excited me enough that I wanted to record them and share them with you all. So awesome. <laughs> um, I've rec- I recently started a new job, and I was I was like you know going through orientation, and um, I was sent on my break. They were you know I have to get a thirty minute break, so I just started my break, and I opened up my phone to text uh, my my husband Kyle about it, and I pulled up his his messages on my phone, and as I clicked on his name, I received a text from him saying, "How's orientation?" <laughs> And it was just, it, it felt like, you know, a, a, a monumental moment. I was like, ooh, that's kind of freaky because I was just coming to tell him how orientation was going. Um, so that was a little one. This other one happened, I think, like on the same exact day or maybe the day after. But it was uh, it was National Ice Cream Day. And I, I follow this comedian actress named Rachel Bloom. Uh, she created the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, if you're aware. It's my favorite show. Um, so I follow her on Instagram. Oh, okay. And she posted about this She posted about this brand name called Jenny's Ice Cream, which I'd never heard of before. Oh, that's what it was. It was National Eat Ice Cream for Breakfast Day. That was like the specific day. Um, and so Jenny's, she like reposted this thing from Jenny's ice cream saying that they were trying to hit a record for the most people posting about them eating Jenny's ice cream that day. Um, and again, I'd never seen or heard of the brand in my life. So I, I went to their Instagram and I was looking at all their flavors and they had some like really good breakfast flavors. It was like, I don't know, you know, like chicken and waffles and like fun breakfast flavors. I was like, oh, that's so cool. And, and they looked really good. And I was like, I wonder if they sell them in New York. And I was like, mm, who knows? Maybe I'll go look for some after work. And so um, all of a sudden I get a, a Facebook notification from my neighborhood buy nothing group, which if you guys aren't on your buy nothing group in your local neighborhood, you need to get on that. It's just this great like way to communicate with people who live in the nearby area of you that are getting rid of stuff or looking for stuff and it's just like a big trade organization like you know we just like help each other out like people have food that they give away or or things or technology and you know um couches whatever so it's it's a cool little thing but I got a notification from the Buy Nothing group and I clicked on it and someone was giving away three pints of Jenny's brand ice cream. <laughs> and this all happened like in a, in a matter of two minutes. I was like, this is crazy. I've never heard of this brand in my life. And now it like Rachel Bloom talked about it. I saw their Instagram. I was like, hmm, I wonder if I can buy it. And someone in my neighborhood was giving up the ice cream. I was too slow to the bait though, so I didn't end up getting the ice cream. So it's, it, it's an amazing synchronicity that ended with a sad story. Chicken and waffles. <laughs> 
dirty laundry flavor. There's just so many flavors. <laughs> Gross. <going laughs> yeah, there was like a, I don't know, there was like a blueberry crumble, like, you know, just kind of like. What is it called? Je- Jenny's. Jenny's. J-E-N-I. J-E-N-I. Jenny's. Yeah. Awesome. Those are <laughs> spunky little moments. And if you don't write them yeah. down, if you don't write them down and, and celebrate them later, you'll just forget about them. So it's disappointing, though, that the flying crafts are not, they might not be those colors. He's he's right. It's, he's saying that it might be some sort of a gas. Although in the photographs, it does look like the little triangles themselves are those colors. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's, I think that's where the color is coming from. But um, yeah. he describes that there's like a, uh, a, some kind of gravitational force that the other three crafts were like emitting to the fourth craft that was dropping. And it was like, the, the fourth craft was literally falling. And then they like, all hovered above it and it it stopped and it like started going back up and like like as if they were pulling it right like they attached an invisible rope to it and like pulled it away so that it wouldn't crash in the middle of town yeah so there's sort of a narrative to this moment like he he observed maybe a craft that was struggling they were passing through literally intersected with his existence this weird moment of these ufos struggling yeah so this wasn't just a normal ufo sighting he he was potentially no he was potentially witnessing a crash and and retrieval by us forces right so this this oh, was potentially crashed? huge did it crash he he said that it they disappeared like when they started pulling the the fourth craft with the invisible rope they it disappeared into the cloud deck, so he he never saw what happened. But they a all disappeared, crash. or th- yeah, yeah, they, yep, exactly. So um, so this is this brings us to the beginning of the end, right? So everything goes downhill from here, and there's just some crazy stuff that happens to Marion. This oh, is God. um, we're looking at like one week after the sighting now, right? So it was January first, so it's January eighth. Um, Marion is asked uh by a friend to like come over and work on their resume like they needed some help so he comes over and they have dinner together and while he's there like he's just helping out and they're chatting catching up this friend was facetiming their sibling and uh coincidentally they were like oh i have to run over to the neighbors really quick i'll be right back talk to my sibling while i'm gone right so marion's like okay so he takes over the the phone he's talking to the sibling and they introduce their spouse to him and this he named this person mary but obviously we're protecting their their identity for for the sake of this book but he introduces their spouse mary um who ends up being a command level officer with the u.s air force space command hi marion nice to meet you my name is mary hi i I recall hearing about you so i heard you saw something you have your laptop with you right yes i do it's it's right here still turned on but why do you ask why don't you pick up sarah's phone turn it around and show me what you got Okay. I replied, thinking it was all in the family, so no big deal. There. Can you see that? Amazing. Yep, that sucker's real, all right. They're all real. That's pretty amazing. I know. I could hardly believe it myself. You can't take this to the press. Don't call CBS. Don't call CNN or Fox. You're an astronomer. You're not going to do any of those things. (laughs) All right. Listen, you need to know that I work for Space Command. In my line of work, secrecy is everything. It's extremely important that you comply with everything I'm about to tell you. Because you're an astronomer, people will listen. Anyone will listen to you. The media will take this up the chain so fast you won't be able to leave your house for weeks. And that's exactly why you're going to listen to me and stay silent. 
Marion, this is what you're going to do. You're not going to talk to anyone, not the media, not anyone. You're going to send me those copies. I want everything you've got. The pictures, the videos, anything else you can think of. I want copies of everything. Okay. I'll send you copies of what I have. Fortunately, Mary never noticed that I hadn't agreed to stay silent. The audacity of this woman to try to give Mm -hmm. him orders. He doesn't work for her. He doesn't have anything to do with her. A relative, right? This was, who was this? This was his brother's. This was, okay. So it's his friend's siblings spouse. (laughs) Right. His friends. Exactly. You're, you're, you're. No, no, no relation at all. No relation, no relation, no authority over him trying to tell him what to do. Like how brainwashy is this cult of government agents protecting their ass that they try to manipulate civilians if they encounter them? I mean, this woman must have thought to herself, like, you know, I don't know. Like, I'm going to have to do some <laughs> some Marion control, mind control, you know, like salesy, pitchy kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. Weird. Yeah. And just the way she spoke to him is so, like, cold and, like, here's what you're going to do. You're going to send me everything. You're not going to talk to anyone, you know? Like, it was it, ugh, just what a weird interaction. And he just kind of laughed it off and was like, All You're right. not going to talk to anyone. You're not going to tell anybody about this. But it made him very curious. You're not going to tell anybody about this. (laughs) You know, it it made him be like, wow, well, if she works for this, or sorry, I should just say they, because we don't even know if if Mary is a woman. If they are so curious about this and want it, like, and they're high up in in the chain of command like that, like, maybe this is a bigger deal than, than he initially imagined. So I would have just been really crazy. I would have been like, (laughs) here's what you're going to do. You're going to get some waffles. You're going to make those waffles fresh. You're going to put butter on them, <laughs> bacon. You're going to put two eggs and American cheese inside. You're going to wrap oh it God. up in a nice piece of wax paper. You're going to drive it over. You're going to feed me in the bathtub. And then I will <laughs> comply. Like, it's almost just as absurd that she's telling, giving him orders. But she's right, though. She's right that with an astronomer, we will listen to an astronomer. Like, that's the whole yeah. beauty of him coming forward is that we are going to listen to this guy because he was skeptical. He was professional. He is smart. But he is he is smart enough to trust his own eyes and ears mm-hmm. and to follow the pattern of his life and see that, well, maybe there is some deception going on. I mean, he's telling us right here, right then and there that – they're, they're warning him to be silent about this right away. Yep. If they didn't care, if they didn't take him seriously, there would never be a warning. Nobody would care. You know what I mean? They, <laughs> they'd be like, have fun. Go back to the McDiner. Yeah, put like, the oh, pictures on the wall. Who that's cares? Cute. But she says, <laughs> in her words, she says, yup, amazing, yup, that sucker is real, all right. They're all real, she says. So Marion decides to consult his brother, who, again, we mentioned is a ufologist. His brother's super excited. He's like, dude, you need to reach out to two guys. I got their names for you. Bob Wood and Stanton Friedman. Do you remember who Stanton Friedman was? He's like, oh, no. Not that guy. (laughs) He's like, that guy? Oh, God. 
but after they talked about it and Marion told him like, listen, this is what happened the other night with this, this person that was, you know, the spouse of one of my friend's siblings, like no connection at all. But they basically demanded me to stay silent about it. And like, I'm not really sure if I should be telling other people about it. Like, I, I don't know. So after a lot of discussion, his brother was like, okay, maybe don't tell them about this and just wait to hear a reply from the government. But Marion knew, you know, working for NASA, he's like, you don't want to wait for the government to reply to you. <laughs> you know, if you're going to take action, you need to do it now because you might actually not get a chance to do it later. He decides to email Stanton and just go for it and be like, hey, bro, remember that time <laughs> at the Jet Propulsion Lab when you were a jerk to me? Well, I got some information for you. He gets an immediate reply from the guy at like five in the morning being like, we need to talk. So they have this whole conversation. He agrees to be you know, to not say anything to protect Marion um, and not say anything to the UFO community until told to do so. So he crosses his heart, swears, hopes to die. Cross your heart and hopes to die um, that he won't say anything. He also contacted, this is Marion, he contacted an old friend who worked at NASA and just kind of explained everything from a scientific point of view and was like, I'm not sure what to do. I feel like I'm getting into something that could be potentially really messy. And like this person really trusted him and believed in him as a scientist and like thought he was very credible. So the fact that Marion was talking about this like in such a desperate manner was like, oh, you know, he he means business and they trusted him and but they were confounded at what he discovered as well you know so he he decided to like hold off on sending all that information to the air force but uh, eventually like the this mary person just kept bugging him and being like when are you sending that when are you sending right. that like so he he had no choice he sends it in Again, he didn't sign like an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement saying that he wouldn't talk to anybody else. He never, as you heard in the end of the scene, he never agreed to be silent. He just agreed to send over the documents. So Marion emails Space Force and they immediately tell him, we're sending an F-18 fighter jet to scope out the area. This happened for over the course of a whole week. He kept hearing these fighter jets flying over his house, heading to the area where this potential crash could have been. He never heard anything from it, but uh, during that time, this like weird waiting period where he felt like something big was happening, but he wasn't hearing anything about it, he decided to speak to Bob Wood also, who uh, was the other ufologist that his brother recommended um they had a really great conversation and they both agreed that this was more than just a sighting this is possible craft retrieval which is huge this is like you know wow. maybe potentially the first thing since roswell right <laughs> so this is where the real fun begins all of a sudden out of nowhere marion's his calls start dropping he starts losing calls not receiving emails as what he described as interference from the government and threats to you know him not staying quiet he felt estranged from friends for months like people weren't reaching out to him but it turns out that they were reaching out to him but he wasn't replying to them and so they were mad at him for ignoring him and the the only way that he found out about this was that some of his friends actually reached out to his family and they were like dude what's up with marion is he okay and he was like oh my god like i haven't even received any emails from these people no phone calls no texts, no nothing so he had no idea un unless they reached out to like his brother he was denied access to his own social media he was trying to promote uh, a book at the time that he was writing um uh, a Christmas book and it had nothing to do with <laughs> any of this he just like he illustrated and wrote this little book that he was trying to sell and uh, he was having trouble like accessing his own social media to try to sell it and he couldn't figure out why okay. he couldn't get through to anyone no one would return his phone calls 
Then he noticed that he was being followed by marked and unmarked cop cars. Um, wow. They never engaged, but they were constantly following him. Anytime, even when he was doing just mundane trips to the grocery store, he would notice that a car was following him. And now, now you're kind of thinking like, too, like, oh, is is he just getting neurotic because he's not hearing any information from the government? Like, is he just feeling paranoid? You know, is this really happening? But you, from all the previous information that we've talked about, you know that this guy is credible. That he's gonna like right. take the information that he sees for what it is. He's not gonna exaggerate and and become paranoid for for no reason. Right. He he's honestly just thinking that this whole UFO encounter is behind him already. He's like, I did what I was supposed to do. I sent in the documents like I'm not even talking about it. I'm just trying to get back to my daily life and people are following him. Right. So he, he, he refers to them as MIB goons. Men in black goons, right? Sure. Um, and it, because because it's just ridiculous the extent that they're going to follow him around and to like, uh, is it like, are they protecting him maybe from something else or are they just trying to watch his every move and trying to make sure he's not doing anything against the government? You know, like what what's going on? So there's one big event that, that really, I, I loved reading this. I actually read it a couple times because it was so like, wow, this is crazy. But Marion was invited to a NASA event that was celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Voyager missions, which he was on. So now we're in November of 2017, right? So this has been 10 months uh, since the UFO sighting and, and he's, and he's being followed all this time. Right. And so he attends the anniversary event, um, reconnects with old friends. Oh, by the way, he drove another fancy classic car to the event, his 1962 Thunderbird. And he was Ooh. very excited about bringing it there. Um, and he, and he knew the MIB goons were behind him and the event goes well, yada, yada. He comes out and he, uh, gets in his car and revs up the engine and the battery turns over. It's dead completely dead this man works on his own cars by the way so he knew that his, that car's battery was in perfect shape and it's really hard to mess with and he's thinking wow this is what they're gonna do to me really and all the cars are exiting the parking lot and he's stuck and it's his car and one other car left in the parking lot at the end of the night and he's trying he gets out this like little box and he's trying to um, start up his own engine and but it's just not enough juice like the thing is really dead like whatever they did they killed the battery right so he sees these men step out of this black suv nearby and uh it's again like i said it's one of the only other cars in the parking lot at this time and i i want to have a little right. pause here before we get into our scene because um i think marion was prepared for this event because of the way that he was raised um you don't know anything about his dad at this point but he like at the end of the book he talks about all of his dad's accomplishments which you think like marion's accomplishments sound pretty cool wait till you hear about the type of person his dad was oh interesting um, his dad was an aerospace engineer who worked for the military Wow. He dealt with highly classified spy satellites. He was um, involved in the Apollo moon program. He built the craft that actually got the men to the moon. Like he was a part of that. And so you're thinking of all these amazing accomplishments that he had, uh, you know, in his adult career. But previous to that, he actually was an escaped prisoner of Auschwitz. He was a survivor of Soviet communism. He spoke five languages fluently at a young age. And he was wow. the youngest operative in the U.S. Army's counterintelligence corps. How crazy wow. is that? That's incredible. This, what an incredible, amazing, right? What an incredible like lineage of of minds, you know. And again, we're talking about right brain and left brain people. Before he became an aerospace engineer for the military, 
he was a concert violinist. <laughs> wow, that's Isn't that that's incredible? incredible. Yeah, I so just, the, I, the right brain, left brain, right? They exactly. have artistic These are both talent. brain people. Yeah, these are people <laughs> who are talented on many levels. And So I, I just want to say I think I think Marion's um, knowledge that he had from his dad and like the information that was passed down about the way that the military deals with certain things and and how intimidating they can be really helped benefit marion in this it looks like they're trying to intimidate him like they Mm -hmm. they want to scare him a little definitely it kind of began with that woman on space command right this sort of like let's command them and it got in his head because he's like i don't know if i should talk about this right and now they're sending people after him to try to scare him a little bit back him away this is before he's written his book right and mm-hmm. everything, yep. so they're they're trying to prevent this from getting bigger. Because again, he, he he was trying to just leave all this UFO stuff behind him at this point. He was like, I don't even care anymore. Like that's in the past. I'm like I'm trying to move on with my life. He's still an animator at this point, but he's trying to become like a well known author, and he's publishing this book, and he's having trouble like advertising it, and it's just like, what does this have to do with my life anymore at this point? Like, what do they think they're gonna get out of me? You know. Um, so he approaches these MIB goons who were obviously watching him. Hey guys, how's it going? Uh, Super sorry to bother, but I just attended this fantastic Voyager anniversary event and now I'm just trying to get home, but my car is dead. Uh, Oh, I'm so sorry, I forgot to introduce myself. Uh, My name is Marion Rudnick. I was on the NASA Voyager team on their missions to Jupiter and Saturn. Did you attend the event as well? Uh, Well, either way, it's good to meet you. I said as I extended my hand out to shake theirs. Where are you from? Did you work at JPL or NASA or in aerospace? I watched them look at each other in shock for what seemed like an eternity. I'm from JPL. Oh, really? What project? Er, the... We were involved in the mining of planets. We all worked there. Oh, nice. I had never heard of this project, and they knew. I was on to them. Listen, guys, I was just wondering if you could help me out. My battery seems to have died, and my booster box doesn't have a sufficient kick to, to start my car. I just want to get home. Would you mind giving me a jump? We can't, because we don't have jumper cables. Oh, no worries, because I do. I'll be right back with the cables. I glanced back while rummaging through my trunk to see three utterly flabbergasted men who didn't know what to make of me. All right, here we go. Do you know how to hook them up, or would you like my assistance? As one of the men pulled their car up to mine and popped the hood, I connected the cars. <laughs> All right, rev your engine a bit. Uh, not, not yet, just a, just a little bit more. I wanna make sure it starts good. I was milking this and they were furious. All right, I'm gonna try to start it. Wow, I can't believe that didn't work. Too bad. That's not a problem. I guess I'll just have to call AAA now. Thank you, gentlemen, for your help. I appreciate it so much. And I got in my car and made a phone call to AAA. <laughs> nice. He confronts them. He he ridicules them in a way. He's like, I know you're following me. He was probably pissed that they messed with his car. I mean, yep. like, you know, it's, it's not right to intimidate somebody. And this is a very intelligent guy. Like, you're not just going to scare him by following him right. around and messing with his cars you know don't mess but the with best the part is that he just car. he walks straight up to him and just acts dumb like he's just like hey buddies 
can you yeah. help a man jump his car, you know? And it's like, they knew, but they couldn't reveal who they were and that they knew that they knew. And he knew that they knew that they knew. <laughs> it's, uh... It's like a John Candy moment. You 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 <laughs> picture like John Candy doing this, and it's just hilarious. And and their excuse, what they say they're from. Uh, th- we're involved in the mining of planets. We all work there. The fuck does that supposed to mean? Like, all right, he's fighting fire with a little humor, right? And exactly. He tried, and he was really hoping that it would jump his car because he was hoping that was going to be the end of the interaction. Um, But the guys just go back to their car, and they go back to exactly what they were doing before, which was just standing outside of the car, staring at him. And so he calls AAA, and the guy comes, and he's having a lot of trouble getting in through security into the parking lot. Like, the the security guy is giving him trouble. He says, there's no car in there that needs your help. And the guy's like, I'm literally on the phone with him right now. Like, look over there. You can see his 1962 Thunderbird. That's where I'm trying to go. Then security's giving him trouble. He's like, no, there's there's no car over there that you need to help. I'm not going to let you in. And thankfully, this AAA guy was like, really hard pusher he was like i'm gonna call the cops if you don't let me in because this is illegal like you can't prevent me from getting in, into this parking lot to help a customer yeah call law and, enforcement right yeah, that's a good idea so yeah. he gets in they let him in um so you know i'm just kind of thinking like wow did the, like either did the mib goons like pay off the security guard as well like or was he involved in this was he one of the hired agents that like took over the security booth like what were they planning to do to marion how how freaking crazy is this right like i i'm sure they had a very big uh a very different idea of how that night was gonna go but because of the way marion handled it he got himself out of a really scary situation do you think that he was in a scary situation because of what he did or do you think he was already in a scary situation he sort of was able to disarm i yeah i think he was already in a scary situation because like they killed his battery for a reason they wanted him to be the only car left in the parking lot you know like they they were probably going to just erase him from the earth like (laughs) you know think about worst case scenario here absolutely but so he he does the best thing that he could have done, which was just to approach them as if he had no idea who they were, which totally worked and threw them off guard. He uh, and when it doesn't when that doesn't work, um, he calls AAA. And so he gets another witness on the scene, basically. And this guy helps him jump his car immediately. He gets the car started. He pops the battery out of his phone, which means that they can't track him anymore. And he zooms off into the interstate in his 1962 Thunderbird and he loses the MIB goons. (laughs) I want to know what song he put on at that moment, you know? Yeah, right. (laughs) Getting to the highway. So that's pretty badass. I mean, I think in moments of danger, it's not just in the movies where you get to Ryan Reynolds your way out of a situation. Like you're in moments of craziness like that, you can sort of like distract them, humiliate them, embarrass them, make them kind of on edge about your intentions, you know, kind of disoriented them kind of took control away from them in that situation which is which was very intelligent yeah it's brilliant and i and i think it comes directly from the way he was raised from his dad like if he hadn't had that prior knowledge of the way the military intimidates and how they can be distracted you know he might not have been able to write this book and get out of that situation you know like who knows what would have happened yeah i don't think that he 
is a big enough threat for them to want to kill him. But we don't know. Yeah. Right? No, like because no, you're right. Definitely our military, this silence, anybody who talks thing has definitely gotten people killed. This horrible mm-hmm. policy, right? So he has this sighting. He gets persecuted, basically, or, or, or followed, you know, by these agents. I'm curious as to where things go for him from there. Yeah, well, luckily... All of this craziness is about to come to a close, but not without a little cherry on top. Um, so again, like I said, he was trying to promote this new book, um, and it was a Christmas book, right? So we're in November of 2017 when this Voyager um, event happens. He gratefully avoids it, um, and soon after that, he's trying. He's back again, trying to promote his book. He's just trying to do his own work, and he's promoting it on Amazon and Kindle for um, Black Friday sales. Okay, so this is pretty soon after. Um, He notices that he's not getting a single sale, even though his friends are, like, trying to help him and support him, and he knows that people are looking for the book. Um, So he looks into it to see why, and he can't find the book anywhere. Like, on an Amazon search, it won't pop up. So he just starts going through all the ridiculous Amazon pages of stuff, you know, like where they just give you things that are kind of recommended. Um, And he gets to page 28, where he finds his book, and it's perfectly placed between two other products. One is a baseball cap that says in big letters here, fuck you. And uh, and below is a t-shirt that says, you're screwed. Misspelled and all, Y-O-U-R, you're screwed. And he finds his book in between those two products. Weird. <laughs> yeah, weird, right? coincidental it's very sweet though for whoever this is to have made him a hat and a shirt though (laughs) yeah so it's like thoughtful trolling you know he talks to his nasa friend about this who confirms like yeah you are you're being attacked this is a denial of income attack by the government that is what's happening to you so he calls amazon and goes through their whole process to try to get help and try to get his book like unhacked and um he speaks to this girl that he refers to as fangirl because it turns out that she knew who he was and she's like she knew all of his accomplishments and she was like oh my god i'm so happy to help you out like this is so cool i'm talking to Marin rudnick ah. and so she looks into it for him and she discovers that his account had been hacked from the inside which means that amazon hacked his account Wow. <laughs> and um, so he's assuming it's from the Department of Defense that they like th- he finds out that someone actually came in to, in person to Amazon headquarters to threaten them about this account of, that Marion had with Amazon. And so she helps him get his account back. It takes like almost a month. He gets it back by December. And um, if you if you're thinking about the timeline here, we're December of 2017. This is the same time as those ATIP videos were released by the Pentagon, right? So right. suddenly everything disappears. The MIB goons disappear. All of his problems disappear. He gets all of his phone calls back. His emails start coming in. He called it the best Christmas gift ever, but he did miss out on a lot of sales for Black Friday for his new book. So he had to like kind of re-promote his book, unfortunately. <laughs> but just like that, right? All of a sudden, these videos are released, and they stop bothering him. I wonder if that team of uh, dummy goons, they were just, like, reassigned. Like Yeah, his, oh, of course. They're probably just, like, let's stop following Marion <laughs> and other people, like, enough. Like, just let yeah. them do their thing. It doesn't matter. You yep. know. Crazy, man. So... 
Marion goes on at this point to, like, talk about um, how he doesn't like the term UAP, which we've talked about in previous episodes. It stands for Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. He said that to him, that term is really unsatisfying and confusing because Luis Elizondo, who you mentioned earlier, refers to these crafts as transnatural, right? That they can travel through space and time and air and water easily. Remember that tic tac yeah. just dove into the water, right? Yeah. So um, when you when you say unidentified aerial phenomenon, it's like you're limiting the potential for a craft to be transnatural, right? And you're suggesting that it's only limited to airspace that it that it occupies. So he he really believes that the term UFO is the best term, and he understands why people are trying to change it because it has such that you know like bad rep behind the term UFO and like uh. But the military still uses it to this day and he actually coined two of his own new terms so we'll talk about those he coined ufc which stands for unknown flying craft instead of unidentified flying object and uh ntac n-t-a-c so non-terrain aerospace craft and this is what he puts in this category under what his sighting was back in january um that this qualifies as a non-terrain aerospace craft and he knows what is that it's it? n-t what N-T-A-C. N-T-A-C. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think. N-T-A-C. N-T-A-C sounds cool, right? Sounds science-y. Yeah, that's um, con- so but kn- you're right. It just makes things more confusing because right. you're basically these terms are designed to continue to, uh, you know, bring attention away. I guess take it away from the stigma of UFO, yeah. but also yeah. just distract people and confuse right. people. Um, so he, he calls this NTAC, he, he says it's specifically a craft, right? That's in the, in the word, intelligently controlled, and it suggests that it's otherworldly, non-terrain, right? So there were two UFO videos that were uploaded to YouTube um, that reflected the same day as his sighting. Just uploaded by, like, just regular people, not, like, released by the Pentagon or anything. But he found these on YouTube, like, later that year, right, in December. And he discovers that both of them occurred in California. But both videos only show three crafts instead of four. The first video that he saw that occurred before his sighting, time-wise, occurred in a town that was 300 miles away. But the other video that he found that timing-wise occurred after his sighting was only 40 miles away from where he had his UFO sighting. So what he kind of deduced from this information, if those videos are real, is that it seemed like three craft were coming to help this fourth craft that was above his city at the time. And by the time they arrived, they were trying to get the craft back up into the air to come back wherever back is. But they failed because that second video that was on YouTube uh, showed only three craft leaving the premises so he's he's kind of thinking like is this proof that they failed to revive that fourth craft and that it really did crash somewhere but no one knows about it Mm -hmm. so he in the months following this this is like now we're in 2018 right he he thinks that's um a military base got has been set up near his neighborhood because there's just been crazy increased activity and and sightings too. So not only are like helicopters flying over his house every single day, um, they're taking pictures of his house. They are diving at him when he comes outside to like kind of look up at the helicopter and document them because he's doing he's documenting uh, just as much as they're documenting him. And I guess there were several instances where helicopters would literally dive down like toward the ground 
around at him as like an intimidation factor. And on top of like all the military helicopters <laughs> and fighter jets flying overhead, he was also witnessing orbs. Um, he saw a Tic Tac UFO. He witnessed um, what he thinks is the first of its kind, a pyramid tetrahedron, which is, wow. you know, we've talked about those pyramid um, UFOs right. in the past. Um so he, it just like kind of br- brought him to this question like are the military interested in UFOs or are they interested in me and the UFOs are are interested in what they're so interested in and that's why all of this activity is happening like why is it just happening around him right like what's what's going on that he's unaware of and so you know now he just all of a sudden has plummeted his life into this new direction of like i am inevitably in this community and can't deny that it it no longer exists because it doesn't and it is real and you know he's had many many sightings after the first one that caused this intersect to occur in the first place and he talks about at the end of his book uh that he has a sequel coming out already that has all of the further sightings that he's witnessed and it's called intersect 2 the game changers um and he was like keep an eye out for my book coming out summer of 2019 um but nothing has come out so i'm a little curious that's actually in in the summer of 19 is when this book came out and i think earlier i might have said summer of 2017 but that's not true he uh he was writing the book in the summer of 2017 but it didn't actually get published this book that we talked about today until the summer of 2019 so it's like i don't know did things get delayed um and is has the sequel not come out because of like pandemic reasons or is there something else going on that we don't know about like when is this book supposed to drop? I, I, I googled around for like 30 minutes. I couldn't find anything out about it. It's not on its website. It's not on any Google search or like, you know, Amazon or anything. So yeah, I'm just wondering what the issue is with this, this so-called sequel that he talked about at the end of his book. Um, yeah, but it was a pretty wild ride. I, I enjoyed it, learning he's about still it. working and, on it. Yeah. I would love to maybe call him up and have an interview and see what's going on. <laughs> That would be cool. Yeah, we haven't done interviews yet, but we we uh, we definitely want to. I think in the future, I'm sure he would be interested in talking about it. I mean, he has talked about it before on Mysterious Universe and and a couple other podcasts. I think. So, how is the tone of his book? Is it is he a good writer? Is he is he entertaining? You said you were pretty yeah. into. Yeah, definitely. I think... Um, um, he seems like he has a good sense of humor. Yeah. He's totally. very smart. Yeah, all of the above. I think very easy to read. It wasn't like... I mean, he did get into some technical things, but like for people who are curious about that and want the hard proof, like it was there, definitely. And oh, it's there. Oh, well, that's good oh, to know. Oh, for sure. Everything. He broke down everything. There's Like I said, there's a whole appendix at the end of the book, like showing his mathematical equations and how he came up with the... Um, you know, the assumption of what size the craft was, how far away it was, how fast it was going, yada, yada. Like, and he has documents of everything, like literally so many pictures of helicopters that were flying over his house and like the good quality of the picture shows how low it was flying. Like it was flying too low for, you know, legal legality reasons. Um, I think the phenomenon knows when it's being observed and it can kind of fixate on individuals. We've talked about that in the past, that like mm-hmm. people who have sightings have more sightings. Um, and then I think the government just 
has you on their radar because they're your, I mean, where you go, sightings will go. There's a connection right. there sometimes. So they kind of have to, they probably have lists of people who are, are pursued by the phenomenon um, and who are simultaneously curious about it. I mean, this is life changing stuff, sometimes for the better, often for the worse. You know, it, it, it changes your life to have experiences like this. You want to know more. Clearly, we want to know more, you know, <laughs> like it, it's it's something you want to you want to know more about. I mean, planet Earth is obviously a fascinating place for this for these beings. You know, they want to study us and observe us. Maybe they're at war with us when we don't even know, like maybe there there is there's a power struggle between different races of beings that we're not aware of but there's this fascination with earth and things get messy you know they get messy planes go down um you know looking into the roswell book of last week it kind of started to make me realize that this this was like the first clumsy one of the first clumsy experiences the military had with uh, craft retrieval but it probably has a much tighter system for it now yeah, and, totally. Um, and anyway, in terms of Marion Rudnick, like you can't, I think the problem that they had with him is that they can't just erase him. Like it's, it, he has all over his website, he has proof of where he's worked, where he's been, who he's met. He has pictures of himself on a freaking, on telescopes, you know, <laughs> like you can see that the man is, is legitimately who he says he is. And he he's brave enough to kind of come out and say that this is real. Um, so I hope I hope that we get to read his new book and uh, I hope yeah, we see a same. lot more Marion Rudnick's Rudnick's come out and, and share their story. That's it for today's feast. Thank you for dining with us. Hold your cosmic appetites for next time. And reach out to us on Twitter and follow us on Instagram at Cosmic Feast. 